July 20 edition of the PFTPM podcast, four days away from the return of PFT Live. That's Monday morning, July 24, 7 a.m. Eastern, 4 a.m. Pacific. For those of you who either don't sleep or get up really early out in California, on Peacock, Sirius XM 85, Sky Sports Action, which it continues to be until football season starts, then in England, the UK, Ireland. I never get the list accurate. Regardless, Sky Sports NFL returns when football season gets started. We return on Monday and we stay until our next hiatus begins or until they fire us, which you never know when that is going to happen. They're about to fire Daniel Snyder in Minneapolis. The owners are there. I saw the picture of the room where they're meeting. Looks a little Spartan for the oligarchs. I would guess that the average room in one of their yachts is nicer than where they'll be gathering to finally rid themselves of Daniel Snyder. And this isn't big news. It's not Pulitzer level stuff. I was told earlier today that the sale is getting approved. Dan Snyder is done. Josh Harris is in. Now, will it be a unanimous vote? I don't know. Mike Brown, the owner of the Bengals, has a reputation for voting no on anything and everything. Will he have an issue with the structure of the deal? I get the impression they may have looked the other way on some irregularities just to get this thing done, just to get Snyder out. And I've said this. I was on with the sports junkies earlier today. I want to six, seven, the fan in D.C. And I made this comment. I want my owner. If. If my team, my favorite team is selling, I want my owner to be somebody with unlimited cash. I want him or her to be someone who shows up with a big pile of money and doesn't need minority investors and doesn't need hocus pocus and leverage this and borrow against that. I want somebody who can just write the check. You tell me what it costs and I'll write the check. 6.05 billion, here you go. And there's more where that came from. Because I want an owner who's got the ability and the willingness to spend whatever it takes. There's no salary cap for coaches. I want an all-star cast of coaches. There's no salary cap for GM. I want the best of the best. And I want every free agent that my team is pursuing to choose to go there. Facilities immaculate, swanky, opulent. Cash flow on a new contract. Boom, you get it all today. You sign, you sign. And here's your cash. We're not going to defer it by six months, three months, a year, whatever. You get the money. You get it all now. I've got the money. I've got the money and I'm willing to spend it. That's what you want in an owner. And given the appearance that they've had to work through some things to get this all lined up, and they had a prospectus that they sent out to recruit minority owners to get involved in the Josh Harris bid, it just makes me wonder, will they be as competitive as they need to be when it comes to having the ability and the will to spend, spend, spend on players, on coaches, on facilities, on anything, on everything. Because I think there is a clear line between the owners who have unlimited funds and will release them and the teams that end up being more competitive than not. Another question becomes, Oh, beyond whether or not Mike Brown will vote. No, I wonder if Mark Davis, the owner of the Raiders, will abstain. Because he's still upset about 
the John Gruden emails that were sent to the commander's server that somehow ended up in the public eye. Well, Mark Davis just tried to make a statement here and either abstain or vote no, just because he's pissed off that he had to fire a coach that he didn't want to fire. I wonder about that. So will it be 30? And I assume the commanders have a vote 31 and one with one no and one abstention. And will they just go back and redo it with 32-0? A lot of times what happens is when it's clear that something is going to prevail, for the purposes of appearances, they'll go back and redo the vote and make it unanimous. But if Mike Brown wants to send a message, if Mark Davis wants to send a message, then it won't matter. What happens with the team? Now, look, there's going to be a honeymoon period, a grace period, where fans won't won't care. Like, if you would tell the average commander's fan, before we knew where this was all heading, if you had said to one of them last year, I can get rid of Dan Snyder, but you're going to have to go 0-17, they'd say, fine, we'll take 0-17 to get rid of Dan Snyder. Well, how many years will they tolerate of not great football? Like how long until the euphoria over Ding Dong, the witch is dead becomes, hey, Josh, come on, let's go here. It's it's not enough that you're not embarrassing us as fans with off-field news and reports and developments and suspensions and lawsuits. That's not good enough. At some point, we got to win some football games. So I'm curious about that. And – you know, I was asked on 106.7 The Fan today about Ron Rivera. He got fired by the Panthers after David Tepper bought the team from Jerry Richardson when Richardson was forced out. And here's the reality. Rivera stays if he forces his way back. I think he's got to make the playoffs. I think Jason Wright, the president of the team, Martin Mayhew, the GM, and Ron Rivera, the coach, are all tied to whether or not they get to the playoffs. Now, there could be some business stuff that Jason Wright does that just wows Josh Harris and gets him to abandon whatever plan he would have to put his own person there. Because let's face it, that's what these really rich folks do. They have a network of people they know and they trust. They know their competence. They trust their character. They don't want to deal with someone they don't know. At this point, you get into your mid-50s. I know who I know. I know who I'm comfortable with. I know who can get things done. I don't want to take any chances here. So, sorry, Jason Wright. Thank you for presiding over the transition, but now I'm going to move on. That's my prerogative. It's part of being a billionaire. You can hire whoever you want, whenever you want. So, what can Jason Wright do to stay who knows? But I think if the team makes it to the playoffs, it's going to be very hard to get rid of Ron Rivera, very hard to get rid of Martin Mayhew. I don't know what happens with Jason Wright. And Josh Harris is going to have a plan. Look, Josh Harris didn't buy this team because he says, hey, here's a modicum of stability. This is this is the team I want because of all the people they have in place. I mean, it's a team that's available. He tried to get the Broncos last year because they were available. He didn't get them. This year he got the commanders, because they were available. There aren't many teams out there where you would say, I'm not changing anything. Everything is great. I mean, if I'd buy the Chiefs, not changing anything. You know, if Jeff Bezos is waiting to get the Seahawks, I don't know. Do you say, I'm not changing anything? I don't know. By the time the Seahawks are sold, it may be the natural point to change some things. But, you know, the the, the really great, highly functioning teams don't seem to come for sale. And if they are for sale and you buy them, probably a good idea to stay the course. But 
I think that we need to wait and see what happens this season. And what happens this season will go a long way toward telling us whether or not there's going to be a new coach in Washington come 2024. Also, will there be a new name? Will Josh Harris keep the commander's name? It's only been around for one full season, and this is season two. Before that, it was Washington football team. Before that, it was the name that was abandoned, rightfully so, after 10 years of pressure, after Dan Snyder said, all caps, never. The name is gone. What's going to happen? I liked Washington football team, frankly. But will Josh Harris feel compelled to chart a new course and sever all ties? with whatever the team was. Now, we know it's not an easy process. It's not something you just, we're going to change the name. It would be maybe 2024 at the very earliest or 2025 before it happens. What's he going to want to do? And I think a lot of it depends upon what the team does this year. The team can perform its way into the name staying. But when you consider that the name just changed not that long ago, not once, but twice, It's another way that Josh Harris can put his imprint on the franchise and say, this is my team. And now's the time to do it because you can call him anything as Dan Snyder is leaving and the fans will embrace it because they're focused on the fact that Dan Snyder is leaving. I personally wish Nike would leave the NFL. I knew this was going to happen when Nike took over for Reebok. I've called it the Nikeification of the NFL And it continues. Now, look, the one helmet rule that the league got rid of last year, and the league had this idea that never made much sense, that having one helmet and one helmet only all year long somehow has a correlation to concussions. Why? It's the same helmet. If these helmets are so safe, you should be able to wear any one of the same model, and it should be fine. If anything, a new helmet should be even better because it hasn't been used. And if the guy has picked out the helmet that he's comfortable with, you replace one with the other. It's the same helmet. It's the same thing. They don't change. But now that they've opened that door, I think it was the Eagles that proposed a third helmet because they'd like to wear their Kelly Green helmets, their throwbacks, and then they'd like to wear all black like they did this past year. So... I feel like that's coming. Once you abandon the idea that you don't need to only wear one helmet and allow for a second one to be introduced, why not a third? Why not a fourth? And the next thing you know, you're Oregon, and it's a different uniform every damn week. Now, again, I understand that there is a get-off-my-lawn component to this, but I was a lot younger when they first started doing the college uniforms that change every damn week, and I didn't like it then. I like the idea of a football team wearing one uniform. Throwback, I can get behind. My my preference would be to not even have a throwback because we've never changed. Raiders, what would their throwback be? Now, they they, they do have one where the the, the color schemes are a little different. The logo is a little bit different. But like the Chiefs, what would they throw back to? The Steelers throw back to the block numbers. And that was a big deal in 95 or so when they went from the block numbers to the rounded numbers. It's like, it's not like the Steelers to do this. And for some of the teams like the Packers, yeah, there's a, a really old throwback that we don't even recognize. But, you know, the the really good uniforms don't change and won't change. I just feel like Nike puts pressure, puts the ideas in the heads of the marketing people with these teams, and they feel compelled to have some alternate uniform because everybody else does. And we want to sell this stuff. We want to increase sales. It's not enough to have one helmet 
that someone will buy. Let's have a second helmet that someone will buy. Let's have a completely second jersey beyond the home and away jerseys for our constant regular Kellers. And if we can work in a third, so be it. And a fourth, so be it. And a fifth, so be it. But at some point, you don't recognize the team. And at some point, it just doesn't look good. I know it's subjective, but the Lions' new uniforms look like Memphis State. The Colts' new uniforms look like Duke. There's only so much you can do. There's only so many new ideas you can come up with. And my concern is, as they keep trying to come up with more and more and more, we're going to have teams on the field that we just don't recognize. And there's a familiarity to it. I don't care how old you are. There's a familiarity to it. The team that you follow, the teams you're used to seeing on TV, they look a certain way. NFL teams look a certain way. There's a comfort in that. And I don't think it's an age thing. So I just fear that eventually there's going to be three helmets and then there's going to be four. And then you're going to have one of these teams that goes all in on a different helmet every week, a different look every week, different pants every week, different jersey every week. Sell, 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 sell. And plenty of the uniforms that have been overhauled, I don't like. The Rams uniform, I hate. What was wrong with the way that it was? With the simple gold horn on the blue helmet. And I, I, I'm not going to keep going because I, I, I understand. Old man yells at cloud. Old man says, get off my lawn. But I, I really do think that I'd have felt this way years ago. And one of the reasons that you make that that connection with the NFL when you're young is there's something about those uniforms. There's something about the sanctity of that look. And it, and it, it feels unique to the NFL. I think it's one of the issues that these other football leagues have the USFL, the XFL, the whatever the hell FL. And some of you have suggested that, that there be a league called the whatever the hell FL, but their uniforms just, it's not NFL. And that's the problem with some of these alternate looks. They're not NFL caliber. Just because they have the NFL logo on them does not make them NFL caliber. And I don't think at this point there's anything we can do about it. Unless and until Reebok or Adidas or someone else takes the contract away from Nike and there's a push to stick with the traditional uniforms. Most of the throwbacks look better than the base uniforms. Who wouldn't want the Patriots throwbacks to be the regular uniforms? The Buccaneers creamsicle throwbacks to be the regular uniforms. But see, now they found a way to co-brand where they've got their modern look and their old look and they sell both. And as a business person, I get it. But as a football fan, I don't like it. Here's something I didn't like from yesterday. And I decided when I saw the quotes and MDS wrote the story at PFT, I decided that I would wait until today when I had a chance to talk about it, and then I'll write about it later, and I'll put the clip at PFT with the story. J.C. Treder, the union president, appearing on Ross Tucker's podcast, was asked about the situation with running backs not getting paid. Now, Treder's in a tough spot because he represents all players, and there is an element of robbing Peter to pay Paul when you get in a salary-capped environment. The more that one person makes is the less that another person will make. And so if you're arguing in support of running backs to try to get more money, well, you're taking money away from guys who play these other positions because there's only so many dollars available for everyone. That's why there should be separate bargaining units 
frankly. Now, that would diminish the NFLPA. It would fracture into a bunch of different unions, but maybe that's what needs to happen. And that would be far better than what Treader recommended. Treader said, and I agree with his first quote, and what I'm probably going to do is share with you some of the things he said and then offer my commentary before I continue. His first line, and this is from the story that MDS posted yesterday, you need to try to create as much leverage as you possibly can. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. The problem is there's only so many ways you can do it. And that's what Treader goes on to acknowledge. Here's his next quote. That's the tough thing with the franchise tag or being restricted in movement is it decreases your leverage, but then you have to find creative ways to build leverage elsewhere. Okay, I'm going to pause there. The reason the franchise tag is in place is because the players agreed to it. The restrictions in movement are agreed to by the players. The rookie wage scale was agreed to by the players. The players agreed in 2011 to extend from two years to three years, the minimum time period before a draft pick could sign a second contract. You know, Adrian Peterson got his deal with the Vikings, I think two years after. Maybe he didn't. Maybe they wrote that out. They shouldn't have. He should have been clamoring for more. But under the old regime, two years was enough to get paid. Now, three years is the minimum. And I made the argument yesterday on PFT that running back should take a page from what Ezekiel Elliott did in 2019, hold out after three years, insist on your contract after three years, but get your money after three years when that window opens. Okay, back to what Treader said. I think we've seen issues. Now, I don't think anybody would say they were fake injuries, but we've seen players who didn't want to be where they currently are have injuries that made them unable to practice and play but you're not able to get fined and you're not able to get punished for not reporting. So there are issues like that. I don't think I'm allowed to ever recommend that, at least publicly. Good boy. But I think each player needs to find a way to build up leverage to try to get a fair deal. And that's really what all these guys are looking for is to be compensated fairly. Okay, now look. He's saying the quiet part out loud for years before the term hold in became something that refers to the player who shows up unhappy with his contract, negotiates with the team, but doesn't practice until the negotiations have concluded. Hold in is now used in a way that is acceptable. We've seen it with TJ Watt, where it works out well. We've seen it in other situations like Roquan Smith last year, where you negotiate, you get to a point where you can't get a deal done. And at some point the team says, okay, time to practice. It's time to play. We've reached the end of the line here. And obviously the Bears later traded Smith to the Ravens where he got the long-term contract he was trying to get. Hold-in used to mean guy who has an air quotes injury. Guy who would play if he had his financial security, but he's not playing. He's not taking the risk. He's not assuming the possibility that something happens that keeps him from getting paid or he's just generally not happy, and this is his way of making a statement. Sorry, I have a hamstring injury. My hamstring is tight. Oh, you don't feel the tightness? I do. I can't play. I know of players who, at the recommendation of their agents, have done that. goes back to the story Chris Sims tells about Brandon Marshall in the last year of his contract with the Broncos, getting toward the end of the season, very stressed out. How do I go out and play knowing that I'm putting at risk the financial security of my family because I don't have my second contract? And hey, you know, I tried to always cut through the noise on the Lamar Jackson situation from last year. There was a question of whether or not he could or couldn't play with that PCL injury that he had. And 
I thought it was a simple answer. He could have played, and he would have if he had his financial security. And I had no problem with it. You want this guy? I'm having a microphone. I'm sorry. You had this guy in the last of his rookie deal with the Baltimore Ravens with no security beyond 2022. And he has a knee injury. And maybe he could put a brace on it and go play, as Mike Vick said. Put a brace on it and go play. But you're risking further injury. And you're risking getting to the point where the Ravens wouldn't use the franchise tag and no one else would want you. And maybe you have to sign a one-year prove-it deal somewhere before you can get the contract you deserve. It's not worth it. Was Lamar Jackson holding in in the old school sense? Maybe he was, and I have no problem with it if he was. Now, now, I don't advocate doing it across the board. I don't think it's something that, number one, J.C. Treader should be talking about. And for running backs particularly, I'd say be careful what you wish for because the fundamental problem is supply outweighs demand. They can find somebody else. They can basically throw a rock and hit another running back who can come in and do the job at almost the same level as the guy who's not playing. So if you are a running back who's trying to get paid and you decide you're not going to practice or play, they put the next man in, next man up, he does well, okay, we're fine. We're fine without you. And it actually makes it easier for the team to make the transition because the new player has built up name recognition and equity with the fans. That's one of the big problems that teams face. And this is one of the reasons I think teams gravitated away from a workhorse system to two and three running backs, like the Saints did under Sean Payton. There was a time when it was Deuce McAllister, Reggie Bush, and Pierre Thomas. And even now, Sean Payton likes to have a stable of running backs. And I think the unspoken part of that is if you have that workhorse running back who is gaining a bunch of yards, scoring a bunch of touchdowns, selling a bunch of jerseys, generating a lot of attention, you got a fan base that doesn't want that player to go. I think that's why back in 2005, after Sean Alexander became the league MVP and the Seahawks probably would have preferred to just say, we'll start over. They had to pay him. And what they do one year later, ripped up the contract and moved on. So the system is conducive to draft, play, move on. Like the Cowboys did with DeMarco Murray and like they would have done with Ezekiel Elliott if he hadn't held out after his third season. I think if Elliott hadn't held out after his third season, they would have ridden out the five years of the rookie deal with the fifth year option for a first round pick, tagged him once and then said, see you later. And instead, he got seven years and about 70 million. He would have gotten six years and less than 70 million, obviously. And the Cowboys would have moved on last year. So my point is this, if there is a point here somewhere, and I think there is, you better be careful when you decide to activate the hold in if you are a running back and you're trying to create leverage because it may not create the leverage you're looking for. Now, what it could do, you know, if you're Saquon Barkley, and he's making noise about sitting out the whole season. If you're going to sit out the whole season, get your $10.1 million, be part of the Giants, and just be injured. I got a hamstring injury. I twisted my ankle. I got some other soft tissue injury. I got a calf problem. 
that's kind of what Treader is advocating. And, and see, the problem is because of the stupid rule that prevents long-term deals after the middle of July, it's not like the Giants can say, okay, okay, fine, fine. Can we, can we stop the charade here? We'll give you your long-term contract. They can't give them anything at that point. All they could do is say, all right, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll promise not to tag you next year. Will you now show up and play and practice? But again, there's an element of it that is understandable because the player has no security beyond this year, typically when you have the old school hold-in. There is a point, though, where it crosses the line. And that's why Treader's comments concerned me. Because I can get behind it in certain specific circumstances. I don't like it as a blanket approach. The blue flu. Some way to, to get your money, not get fined, but withhold services and force the team to eventually suspend you for conduct detrimental to the team. That's what would happen. And then you have a big mess. You have a big distraction. You have a T.O. situation from 2005. Remember that? When he wanted to be traded so badly, he just decided to be as disruptive as he possibly could in the hopes that the Eagles would throw their hands in the air and trade him. They ended up dealing with him for a full year and then cut him after the season, after they suspended him four games for conduct detrimental to the team without pay and then sent him home with pay. It's one of the things that you can't do anymore. It was baked into the 2006 CBA because of what the Eagles did with Terrell Owens, where they basically said, we'll pay you to get the hell out of here. So look, tread lightly running backs. If you're thinking about faking an injury, because you're going to give the team a chance to show the fans that the team will be fine without you. You better have a good reason for it. You better use it strategically. Don't just use it as a way to create leverage, especially when there's no leverage to be created. For these franchise tag running backs, there's nothing they're going to get in exchange for whatever leverage they exert. What are you getting? You can't get a long-term deal. So I was just surprised. I was surprised that Treader was that candid, and I was surprised that he would create this impression that it was a smart thing to do whenever you're just trying to create leverage. It's not. And it's the quiet thing that he never should have said out loud. I think it's unbecoming to his position for him to say what he said. We all know, those of us that follow the sport closely, know that it's something that can happen from time to time. I just don't think it's something that ever should be uttered publicly. And it's not something that should be done on a regular basis. There are specific situations where it makes sense. But they are the exception, not the rule. We have two coaches left on the PFT list of the top 10 coaches for 2023. And remember, I only wanted to do the top 10. It gets, it gets difficult beyond that. And and I don't want to flag someone as number 32, especially because it'll be an unproven coach. Maybe he'll be great. Maybe Jonathan Gannon, who probably would have been number 32 will be great. Or maybe he'll be fired after one year. Like Steve Wilkes was in Arizona when they earned the number one overall pick and they are going to draft Caleb Williams and they hire Lincoln Riley (laughs) in advance to cement the connection. And I'm joking, sort of. Anyway, we focused on the top 10. Doug Peterson, 10. Mike Vrabel, 9. I'm eventually going to forget one of these. Kyle Shanahan, 8. Sean McVay, 7. Sean Payton, 6. Pete Carroll, 5. John Harbaugh, 4. Bill Belichick, 3. We're down to Mike Tomlin and Andy Reid. Well, you're going to know number one when I tell you number two. And are you really surprised that number two is Mike Tomlin? because that means number one is Andy Reid. Let's talk about Tomlin today. We'll talk about Reid tomorrow. 
Tomlin is, I think, one of the most underrated coaches in the NFL. Tomlin has operated within a very unique system in Pittsburgh since 2007 when he became the head coach. I firmly believe that ownership of the Steelers is heavily involved in everything they do, but does not acknowledge it publicly, doesn't feel compelled to acknowledge it, and also doesn't want to be known as a meddler. But I think Art Rooney II is very, very involved in coaching, staff hires, in overall team philosophy, in player acquisition. It comes off as a group effort that no one takes credit or blame for. I think at that table, in that group, that ultimately, in theory, reaches a consensus. When one of the folks at the table owns the team, kind of hard to overcome what ultimately that person decides to do. Tomlin has thrived in that environment. And, you know, whenever they lose two or three in a row, there's a group of Steelers fans that say, let's fire him now. There would be owners parked in front of the Steelers facility with their limos idling and the back door open and a big pile of money waiting for Mike Tomlin to instantly become the head coach of another team if the Steelers would ever fire him. Tomlin is widely respected throughout the league for his ability to get through to even the most difficult to handle player and get him focused on what he needs to do. We know that he kept Antonio. You think Antonio Brown just all of a sudden blew a fuse in 2018? No. Antonio Brown had been a problem with that team for years, but Mike Tomlin found a way to make it all work. Then when it got to the point where the performance started to dip, all right, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. You'll tolerate that stuff from a guy who's a star. They anticipated that the decline was coming, so they moved on. And he was still a pretty good player, but not so good that they were willing to put up with him. Tomlin was able to keep it under control, to keep the rest of the locker room from becoming resentful, and to work everyone toward the focus of being the best possible team they could be. And he knows, instinctively, I believe, how to communicate how to send those messages, how to press the buttons, and how to get the most out of a player. And it is kind of a an unquantifiable skill. It's the old school football coach. It's the guy that you always want to win the approval of. You're going to do what the coach wants you to do because the last thing you want to do is disappoint him. And it's that... And this is one of the aspects of football. And this is where I say the analytics reaches a water's edge. When you have a quarterback who is capable of inspiring others to step up, there's value in that. When you have a coach who can take that, that collection of parts and make the whole greater than the sum, that's what Tomlin does. And Tomlin consistently does it. He's never had a losing season, ever as coach of the Steelers. And he's had some teams that you look at it and say, Rrr. you know, this year I look at it and I say, hey, I don't know what the Browns are going to be. If Deshaun Watson becomes Deshaun Watson of 2020, the Steelers could be on paper the worst team in the division. They haven't been last place in their division since 1988, 34 years. That's the current record in the NFL. But I just feel like Mike Tomlin's going to find a way to keep them out of last place. Last year, it looked like he was finally going to have his worst 
season, his first losing season as head coach of the Steelers, and they pulled it together down the stretch. And, and look, I know that if they had played the Chiefs, they probably wouldn't have been able to outscore them. They probably wouldn't have been able to keep up with them. But the way they were playing down the stretch, I wouldn't have wanted to face them if I was any of the other teams in the playoff field. We saw what they did in 2005. Now, this was pre-Tomlin. They were left for dead. They found a way to pull it together. They got to the Super Bowl and won it. A couple of years later, they weren't one of the shortlist favorites in Tomlin's second season when they won the Super Bowl, and then they got back there a couple of years later. It's been a long time since they've been there, and there's some folks getting a little bit antsy about that. But I just don't think historically the Steelers have been one of the most talented teams in football. There's something about Tomlin that gets them to play better than what we expect them to be. And they consistently do that. And again, I think if he ever got fired, he'd go wherever he wants to go. And he'd be as good somewhere else as he's been with the Steelers. And every time it happens, I laugh about it. And I hear about it. I have friends that that fall into that category of when are they going to get rid of Tomlin? As I said earlier, be careful what you wish for. Because you may have Tomlin as coach of the Browns. Wouldn't that be something? Or the Ravens. Wouldn't that be something if you end up running Mike Tomlin out of Pittsburgh? And now look, look, as long as he keeps doing what he's doing, he should stay put. I hope the Steelers never get to the point where they keep a coach simply because it's their thing that they've had only three coaches since 1969. I don't feel like that's the case because they make good hires at head coach. They, they made a great hire with Chuck Knoll, and they rode that out for 20-plus years. They made a great hire with Bill Cower. They made a great hire with Mike Tomlin. And whenever Tomlin leaves, I suspect they'll make another great hire. But I don't think they would ever just keep a coach simply because they want to be able to say we've had X number of coaches since 1969. But Tomlin should stay as long as he wants to. And Steelers fans who want to grumble about him there's no guarantee that the next guy is going to be any better. And the guy that you currently have is pretty damn good. All right, let's see what questions we have. I also asked for any thoughts that folks might have on the question from yesterday about the strangest thing you've ever seen in someone else's house. I've, I've, I've failed to come up with anything good. I'm sure there's something really strange I've seen somewhere that I just can't remember. So maybe it wasn't that strange. I saw one or two sprinkled in today, so I'll mention those as I see them. Here we go. PFTPM Posse. Is there a benefit for teams to draft early or reach for the consensus best players at undervalued positions like running back versus taking a chance on one out of 10 defensive ends in the first round and hoping you draft the right one of the few first rounders left when it's time to draft. I think if I understand this, basically if there's a guy who is consensus can't miss, will be one of the best at his position at a position where the parts are interchangeable. When do you draft that guy? Do you draft him round one? That was the B. John Robinson debate. Does he go top 10 simply because he's one of the top three overall talents in the draft class and the Falcons were willing to do it. I have a feeling some fans of other teams that drafted higher then the Falcons are going to wish that their team had had drafted Bijan Robinson. So, yeah, I think there is. And, you know, we used to hear a lot the debate of need versus best available. And I think the reality is when it's time to draft, the assessment of best available is shaped by need. 
Because what if you're one of these teams and you made a trade and you're in the top five because you made a trade with a bad team and you're, you're picking third overall and you've got a franchise quarterback and the best available player is a franchise quarterback. You're not going to draft that guy. You're not. Your needs and your best available come together and they influence what you ultimately do when it's time to make that pick. But, but that idea of surplus value is very real. And if you're ever going to overspend your capital, it's probably better to do it in the draft than it is to do it when you're paying that person the second contract, because you're going to get a running back. If you go top 10, you know, at a rate that is dictated by the rookie wage scale, not at some inflated rate dictated by the upper end of the market where Christian McCaffrey is the current outlier at 16 million a year. Jeremy Dodd, can the NFLPA fight for a luxury tax system in the next CBA negotiations? And can the NFL work without a hard salary cap? Well, yes, they can. I don't think the NFL wants to find out. The NFL loves parity. The NFL loves the fact that in any given year, any given team can indeed be relevant, can indeed make the playoffs. No matter how bad you were last year, that keeps 32 fan bases fully engaged all season long. There aren't many fan bases that I think should look at this season and say, well, well, Maybe you'll get them next year. The Cardinals, sorry, it's true. You know it. Cardinals fans, you want to be mad at me? You know it. You know it. And I think part of it is they know it, so they got to take out their frustration on someone. So let's take our frustration out on the person who is speaking the truth about the current prospects that our team is facing. Cardinals in the NFC, and the Cardinals are the only team in the NFC that I would say has no chance. I mean, look, the NFC South has four bad teams. Well, any of them can win the division. The NFC North has some teams in transition. Any of them can win the division, including the Bears. And with three wildcard spots with all those teams that aren't nearly as good as the AFC teams, I mean, just look around. There's one team that I think can say entering the season has no chance, and it's the Cardinals. But in the NFC where it's all watered down, who knows? Maybe they get lucky. Maybe they get hot. Maybe teams overlook them, and they steal a few wins. And the next thing you know, they're on the fringes of playoff contention. In the AFC, I think the Texans are the one team that I would say it ain't happening. Maybe the Raiders, maybe, especially with the whole Jimmy Garoppolo thing and who's going to be the quarterback and whatnot. Maybe. NFC, or excuse me, AFC East. I don't know if you can hear Mason. Somebody rang the doorbell and she's losing her mind. AFC East, everyone's alive to win it. AFC North, everyone's alive. AFC South, everyone but the Texans is in play. Because, look, I'm not going to put the Colts in that mix because Anthony Richardson could end up being a superstar right out of the gates. I think the Broncos could be better, could be good enough to be on the fringe of the contention. So I think there's three teams this year. Anyway, that's what the NFL likes. I'm not answering the question, but that's what the NFL likes. So can the NFLPA try to get it? Yes. Would the NFL ever agree to it? No. Hunter Wallace, if I'm Saquon, I take a year off, live off the endorsements, and get healthy. If the Giants want to approach me about a one-year deal, it needs to be fully guaranteed, be north of $18 million a year, and an in-writing promise to not tag me next year. He should ask for nothing less. That's fine, but what happened with Le'Veon Bell? What happens if you take off a full year of football? What happens? And the Giants could tag him again next year. 
So I don't know that taking the year off is the answer. The problem is there's no clear answer at this point. I don't know if you had a dog. I don't know what the hell is going on out there, but that dog won't shut the hell up. I don't know what I hear somebody out there. At some point, I need to ask myself, should I go see what's going on? Maybe I should. Let me ask my wife what's going on. All right, uh, I'll keep going until I uh, I hear something more that might alarm me to the point where I need to run out there and see what's happening. Here's a point. Hunter Wallace, the weirdest thing I saw was the absence of any dishes beside a few basic cutlery items and some cheap pots that still had the tags on them. My friend's parents were the type to eat out at nearly every meal because they could afford it and legitimately didn't have the time to. That's in response to the question about the strangest thing you've ever seen in someone's house. That's really not all that strange. Pete Demolitis has texted something strange he saw. Let me see what he what Pete says. Pete says, the oddest, coolest thing I have ever seen in a house. I was once on a boat in Lake Washington in Seattle, and some rich guy's house had a lake-facing atrium with an actual dinosaur skeleton in it. That's not strange. That's just money. There's nothing strange about money. That is the ultimate display of wealth. And that's probably the point at which... I should call this because I am starting to be concerned about what's going on out there. So I'll report back tomorrow on whatever was happening outside my door. We got about 45 minutes in. That's good enough. We'll do this again tomorrow with the number one coach. We already know it's Andy Reid. We'll discuss anything else that is happening in the NFL. Check us out around the clock at ProFootballTalk.com. And thanks as always for some of your time.